Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, a special semi-emergency podcast that I'm taping live from BuzzFeed World Headquarters in New York City with outgoing BuzzFeed News Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for crossing the street, Peter. Welcome it's to your to own have you podcast here in, the, uh, in your rival podcast Are we headquarters rivals? Okay. here. You, you mentioned that you've got low blood sugar. We won't take a ton of your time. I don't want you to pass out on air, although that's a good You know, that was, that was off the record, Peter, the low blood sugar thing. I already have people tweeting about my eating habits. My, my therapist actually has noticed the tweets about how I once ate a hamburger off Say Jones' desk. It's like a whole issue. I'm sure that now you're going to the New York Times, you'll have much less scrutiny. <laughs> The reason, as anyone listening to this podcast knows, that we are talking today is that yesterday, Tuesday, was it Tuesday? You announced that you are the new media columnist in the New York Times, or you will be in March. And I want to talk to you about why you made that decision and also your tenure at BuzzFeed. You are a super old media guy, a very New York media guy, and also a very online guy. And I'm wondering if the way it played out yesterday, once you announced that you were leaving, is what you imagined you would see online, in print, in text, you were telling me off air that you went and read all the emails and saw all the tweets after making the announcement last yeah, night. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I mean, I, you know, I was mostly focused yesterday on on how people here would take it. Like, I love this place and and feel so connected to it. And I think was really, I felt like people here really know me, and I think kind of understood that. I, I mean, I think if you know, if if I had left to be chief content officer at Vox, they would have like appropriately like hacked me to death in the conference room. But I think people understand that like this is like I'm somebody who it totally makes sense that I would want to go do some reporting and media is a beat that I'm interested in. Well, so let's unpack that. Um, first of all, how did the discussion with your staff go? You broke it to the majority of them yesterday. People, you know, were obviously surprised, but also, right, A, I think no, feel like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Like I'm always sort of there, there have been moments when I'm sort of like, actually, I'm just going to go write a story over here. And it's obviously something I love doing. And I think, you know, it's been like a bumpy few years in our industry. And last year was a tough year here. And I think in general, I think, and maybe, you know, I hope I hope this is true, but I do think this is true. Things feel pretty stable. BuzzFeed is in good shape. I, I don't think, I think people, I hope, are sad to see me go. But I think people basically feel like we've built something to last year and are interested in this, in, you know, moving on to interest in the succession story. You like to write. You've been writing. You were a writer. You were a writer. I, you know, I love to report. I don't mind writing. You, you were doing that for a long time before you became a manager. I think you maybe surprised yourself. Turns out you were a very good manager. You did that for eight years. And then along the, along the way, while you were managing, you've been writing. You've been doing some pretty good stuff. You did a very interesting piece about uh, the inner machinations of, of the New York Times and who's going to be the, the new editor there. Which is of extra interest yeah, now. Yeah, it turns out that that's if you want to work at the New York Times, you should just write like a really gossipy piece about senior people at the New York Times. I would recommend that to anybody. That is one of the great secrets of media reporting. It's yeah, it, it, work it, actually, time. one of the great secrets of any reporting. And it, I think it takes young reporters a while to realize this is that the people you write about are obsessed with you and read you. Yes. In any beat. Um, 
Let's sidebar that conversation for a second. Um, <laughs> my point was that you've been writing a lot. You're, I think, reasonably prolific. You just wrote a very dense piece about uh, lefty politics in New York City. Dense. Is dense. that the word for it? <laughs> well, I couldn't finish it. So that's why I'm calling it dense. Yeah, but I'm sure it was very good. And then you've been doing what I, I've, I've already complimented. You do this really cool newsletter where you interact with Andrew Yangs of the world via text and write it up. It's very, it's very consumable. Point being... You could certainly continue to write at BuzzFeed. You could stop managing at BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed has a lot of readers. It has a lot of reach. You built it to be this thing that could reach a lot of people and have impact. Why not do that at BuzzFeed? I mean, it would be too weird. I mean, I, and it's funny because we talked about that with the staff yesterday, and, and they asked me that, and I said it would be too weird. And Jonah said, well, I mean, to be to elaborate, it's like a notoriously bad management practice to say, like, well, the former leader is just going to be over here. He's not going to bother anybody. Like, he certainly won't get in the way of a new leadership trying to really take charge. And, and, and Jonah's like, and I did sort of float that to Ben, but I think we kind of agreed. I do think that's a terrible way to run a transition. Actually, I think it's important that you haven't, you know, that a new editor can come in and really feel like it's their place and not that the old the old boss is like sitting in the next office pretending to be disengaged. When when did you start talking to the Times? Why well, I asked you yesterday in reported that you said you started talking to the Times in late December. Well, I was I mean, I started talking to the Times in I think 2002 or 2003 and I had three terrible job interviews there when I was a Metro reporter. I, I poured a I was just reminding John Landman of this. He was the Metro editor, and I, I sat down with him at his favorite theater district restaurant and poured, like, an extra-large Diet Coke into his lap. Um, so I had three really bad job interviews there in the early 2000s. Um, and then, you know, ta- have talked to them through the years, but this conversation kind of started seriously in late December. That's a very quick move for them, to start talking in late December and announce your hire in late January. They're not, they're not known for nimbleness. Well, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. If that's true or not, but they they were very, I mean, you know, they I thought were deliberate here. I mean, I do think that, you know, I've left a lot of jobs in my life actually, and when you leave a reporting job, like I, you know, you it's easy because it's you know nobody relies on you. Here, I think once we started realizing how, what it's like for me to make a transition, it became clear we just had to. I wanted to be really transparent. Like once I'd made a decision. The idea of walking around here with a big secret for weeks and trying to rig up a big process just like doesn't fit this place's DNA. And so we just sort of made a decision to tell the staff here as quickly as possible, which then pretty much ma- meant and the Times was really nimble and flexible about, yeah. about, about helping us with that transition. And walk us through how that happens. They come to you and say, we would like you to be our media columnist or we would like you to work for us. What would you like to do? Or we'd no, like you was, to do this was, thing and you say, how about media columnist? No, no, no. Dean was like, hey, we, you know, we had Dean an idea. Okay. How about this Top one? better the Times. Yeah. He says, I, I, I'd like you to do this job. Yeah, I think he sort of said, Sam Dolnick and I have an idea. How about this? And I had not considered that and but had been thinking, you know, I probably do want to get back to reporting and you know, in some sense, in my current job, have been reporting on the media for the last eight years. Like, that's, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this beat. You're pretty embedded. I, I called you an old-school media person. You, your eyebrows raised, but like... Yeah, I wasn't you know, sure what you meant by old-school. You, 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 you know the mass head up and down. It's, it's I think we're, like, we're, we're middle school, I feel like, Gen X, you know? Okay, I'll take it. Um, was there a particular hurdle that you had to get over to get your head around the job? And then for the Times, was there a particular thing they were concerned about? No, I mean, no hurdle to the notion that I could just write and report and make trouble. Like that, I love. Um, you know, the real hurdle was leaving here. Like, I love it here. Was there any question about, you know, at BuzzFeed, 
I can do X, or I can publish the Trump dossier, and I pretty much have the wherewithal to just go ahead and do it. And if I have a question, I can call up the CEO, and we can make a decision really quickly, and the Times doesn't move like that. Or maybe there's a kind of reporting or a kind of story I don't know that I can tell the Times. Can I get that done? You know, it's funny. When I was talking to them, I guess actually AG asked me, like, do, do you have any other questions? And I, and I did realize that actually in a lot of situations the question would be, hey, I may get into some huge fight. I might pick some huge, huge fight, and it's really important to me that to work at a place where they have your back. And whatever you say about the New York Times, there's obviously absolutely no question about their courage. You're not going to get uh, suspended for, for tweeting a link to a Kobe Bryant rape allegation story, for instance? Um, I guess you don't know. It's a theoretical. Yeah, I mean, I think that all big newsrooms struggle with their social, including this one, struggle with their social media policy. I do, I mean, I have ideas about that, but I think, I mean, it's an interesting topic. I mean, it's a modestly interesting topic to write about. I look forward to writing about stuff like that. So, Liddy Polgreen, editor of HuffPost, yeah. suggested one of your first columns uh, last night should be New York Times Media Monopoly. Lydia needs to stop trying to scoop me. Um, I, I think no she was comment. being helpful. There is... Yeah, seriously, I told her to keep it in the DMs. So, there's a... Uh, there's a that's one of the one of the conversations that's going on last night is the Times is hiring everyone. Um, what's up with that? And the other version of it is why are the people going to the Times slash why can't they work at digital media? The premise, right, of building up BuzzFeed News and I think Vox and, and a bunch of other publications was these things stand on their own. They're not going to be sort of minor league farm teams for real publications. This is sort of media today. You don't need to be validated by going to the New York Times. Um, and we can see this all over my newsroom, your newsroom, where people go are going to the Times, and it's seen as a step up. Um, I'm wondering how you think about that. I mean, the pendulum swings in this business. And, and I think Donald Trump in particular elevated the New York Times and CNN in a way that you know, it was really transformational for them, but also challenging. And they also are hiring lots of people because the subscription business is going really well. Like these are, you know, and so I, I don't think... They're hiring not, because they can. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously part of it. And when we were growing really fast, we were hiring because we can. But, but I also think, you know, for, like, I, I really, you know, and this is what I always tell reporters, the institutional stuff is overvalued. you got to have a great editor. you got to have the room to run. It's very, very challenging to find that at a big institution like extremely challenging. And I think like I feel really lucky that I've got a role where I'm confident that I will. But there are lots of folks at BuzzFeed have turned, who I've persuaded to turn down jobs at the Times, and I think they've made the right decision too. David Carr, who created sort of the, the media columnist position um, at the Times, was always fond of saying, there's something about the Times where, and he had this metaphor, and I can't do a David impression, where you sort of pull on the, did you ever give me this one, where you, you pull on the, 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 the tablecloth Give it a yank, and everything goes flying out, and it's something you can only sort of do at the Times. I was accidentally doing a David impression there, and, and you hear this a lot, sort of within the Times, and depending on when you're talking to someone, they're either they're they're intensely proud of the Times, and then also very worried about it. They're obviously in a proud phase now. That there is a thing you can do at the New York Times that you can't do anywhere, and it's because you work at the New York Times. Do you agree? No, I mean, I no, I think that like in fact, I spent my whole career competing against the New York Times, and I think that. That there was a period in the 2000s when the Times was incredibly complacent and everybody else just beat the shit out of them and ran circles around them and proved that they actually didn't have any special magic. And they really got their acts together and have been incredibly competitive by hiring great reporters, doing great stories, having great editing, winning on the merits where they're winning. 
And this gets very um, meta, right? Because you guys published the memo that they produced that was yeah. a lot about their BuzzFeed and HuffPost yeah, and Business Insider. Yeah, no, I mean, I think they insight. were humble and learned. I think that, I think that like, that attitude that there's sort of special magic of the times is actually, was actually a real handicap for them that they've mostly gotten over it. I, I mean, the exception to that, of course, is just... I was once hiring, trying to hire a great time. There are many, many great times reporters, and I was trying to hire one of them to, to be an editor at BuzzFeed. And at some point in the conversation, he just said to me, you know, I just can't see leaving the Times because when you work for the New York Times, you just never have to explain yourself. You never, nobody ever asks you, what the hell are you doing here? You know, and, and I think that's an asset and sometimes a liability. Back to the pendulum idea. There is this discussion. It's online. I think people feel it in digital newsrooms that, like, maybe the, the idea that you could create really big, really meaningful challengers to incumbents like the Times Maybe we, we overestimated the, the capacity to do that. A lot of this was based on sort of venture funding and the idea that somehow Facebook was going to lift these things. And a lot of these publications are, are sort of stalled in one way or another, and some of them have entirely folded. I guess I'm re-asking the same question, but do you think that sort of, I think Raju never said he had said, this is sort of the end of the, the BuzzFeed era of rolling your eyes. It's great. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I love Raju. That was an unbelievably stupid tweet. But there is a general and my, sentiment. And, and my staff beat the crap. I was like yeah. going to go and attack so him they, on Twitter. They, then unfortunately, my they, they staff did. It for did. You. Yes. So let's take Raju out of it. There's an idea, though, that sort of everyone sort of hit, the, the, the digital guys have hit their head. They've found the ceiling. Do you think something happens where they then get a new breath of, of I don't know, where they get new, where they get new energy. Um, I mean, I th- yeah, I, I think that you know this business things are never over. It's like politics, you know. I mean, it's it's a dynamic, it's a dynamic situation. I think again, obviously, over the last couple of years, I think in a big cultural sense, Trump swung the pendulum back toward legacy media because that's what he's obsessed with. Right, um, he's a New York guy he, who reads New York print newspapers yeah, and, and watches TV and massively elevated them. Where Obama had been interested in the future and interested in digital media and had elevated digital media, and I think. You know, I think that distinction is blurred between what's, you know, digital and print. But I think that ultimately having having a legacy business is still a huge, huge problem for any anybody who's printing, anybody who's broadcasting is putting a lot of their resources into maintaining a legacy business, even a very strong legacy business in a way that I think means, and, you know, now I guess I'm just in my sort of, I've got a foot in both worlds and with my kind of pundit hat on. I think that, you know, the strongest of the new brands which of which I would say BuzzFeed and Vox are probably the strongest. I think are in a very strong position. I think you know these have built these really big diversified businesses, and I, I don't just I just don't see any reason to think that over the next ten twenty years that the advantage that legacy outlets have right now continues to outweigh the challenge that you have of having a big print business. Yeah, so print specifically is is both an asset for them and then something that's going to weigh them down over time. I mean, yeah, I mean, still to just, feed that beast. Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, when my my son was in elementary school, I um, there was a class trip to the Times printing plant in Queens, and it's like, I mean, you, if anybody, if your listeners have a chance to go there, it's so cool. Like, it's this giant factory, and they actually have a lot of robots. Like, they're very early at automation and these huge wheels of paper, and you know, just printing plants are great. My, when I was the Indianapolis Star, it was so fun. At 4 p.m., the building would start to shake because the paper was yep. going out. But also, like if I had to, as part of my job, oversee a factory in Queens full of robots, like I would quit. Like that is, you know, that's a huge challenge. Like I, we, it's hard enough to put out the news without worrying about a giant factory full of robots. It's still very much an A1 newspaper culture there. 
No, I don't think so. It's I, 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 think, I, I every everyone I see on Twitter and Instagram is constantly uh, documenting their A one story, and these hmm. are all native digital people. Um, that's the story they publish. Where I'm above the fold or below the fold? Below the fold, but I'll take it. I think uh, you know. I feel like I the senior leadership. I mean, in my like experience of kind of talking to them and reporting on them, I don't think the front page came up once. And I think I actually think they've made a real cultural shift there. Where, where you can but, publish your first A1 story. But maybe they're like, maybe they like know to like say that to me. So I don't know. You're going to tweet it. You're going to TikTok it. Oh, A1 me? When, yeah, when you, when you get your first A1 story. I'll probably find out two days later. I don't know. I think you'll know. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't looked at that. I don't, I don't read print a lot. I have a couple more New York Times questions for you. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Be right back with Ben. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I'm back with Ben Smith, who has not eaten. So if he's punchy and I'm punchy, there's a reason for it. But it's good. Um, here's a difficult question, since, since we'll ask it now. I'm assuming you took a pay cut to go work at the New York Times. Is that true? You know, I am. Um, I've really, I've. Cause this question has come up in a couple of different ways over the last day, and I've realized that I am just of a generation that is very uncomfortable talking about this kind of thing. Every, and I actually like kind sex. of love. I like the trend toward that I've noticed in my newsroom and others where people share their salaries. And yeah. I think it's like fundamentally a positive trend. And there's some world where like, like I think if you had really full transparency around this, it would both mean you'd have more equity, which we, you know, work really hard to guarantee through a lot of mechanisms, but transparency is a great one. And you would force really direct conversations between managers and employees about why somebody's paid more than somebody else, which is like, well, your work is better in this way, and if you could do this, it would be more valuable. I mean, I think that would all be good. That said, I am of a generation that is very uncomfortable talking about this sort of thing, and so I'm just not going to answer you. It's a good filibuster. You understand the, the both the purian interest, and there's also a business reason, right? You were managing uh, a couple hundred people at, at BuzzFeed. It was a venture-backed company. You did it for a long time. Um, managers get paid more than, than uh, writers. And I think there are a bunch of people who would be thinking through, could I make less money to take a different kind of job? I'm wondering how you think through that. Not asking you to tell yeah, me what I you Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You know, like, I, I love reporting, and but I also really love managing. I, I don't think that... Yeah, I, I don't... I mean, I, I really liked running the newsroom. I don't, I don't feel like this was some, like... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think good reporters should make a lot of money. I think good, good managers should make a lot of money in an ideal world. I don't, I don't think I have any deep thoughts on this question. I agree with you on both counts for anyone who's listening and employing me. Um, what story are you most proud of at, the, at BuzzFeed? You know, there are so, so many, and, I, and, I, and it's, I don't want to pick one. Like, I can't pick one. If, if I can answer in, a, in, like, a slightly different way, a story that was really— for me, like important, more important in retrospect, and th than I realized was a story where, um, you know, where where I had gotten some stuff. There was some confusion about an event where the some Uber executives thought it was off the record. Nobody had told me, and I got some. some the um, Uber story. Yeah, the Uber story. Anyway, but but the thing about that story that I think was incredibly important to the newsroom was just that, um, like Jonah was my boss was. 
these are, you know, he knew, it's a world he knows, and it was a story they were unhappy about, and their press strategy was to get him to kill the story, and he never considered it. And he, like, didn't really even tell me till after the story was published how much pressure he'd been under. And, and, it, and I just think that, like, it was, like, he's a great publisher, and I think that it's really easy to say that news outlets should stand by their journalists and stand by their stories, and it's easy to say until you are, like, you know, getting really intense pressure from powerful people, until you're facing lawsuits. And I think that, like, he really has stood up to unbelievable pressure on behalf of the newsroom in a way that we just totally take for granted. But that, to me, was a really important moment of, of sort of real, I think for him, too, of realizing that that was part of his job. If you want the full TikTok on that story, there's, a, I think, a whole chapter in Mike <laughs> Isaac's book. Yeah, great book. Um, he lists who was there, who said what, you were the guest of so-and-so. Um, was there something where you and Jonah, and Jonah had many nice things to say about you when I talked to him yesterday, was there one sort of conflict that you guys had that you couldn't get over? Not that I'm not saying it led to you leaving, but that, that sort of where mm. you guys didn't ever sync up. He said, I, "We fundamentally disagree on this." No, like we this whole job eight has been, years fully aligned. No, but it, the job has been a running conversation between me and him for eight years, and I think that we. Uh, yeah, I can't. There's no. There's. I mean, I think I wouldn't be here if there was, wouldn't have been here for eight years if we had some deep disagreement. Back, back to managing again. There's a. Uh, this happens in every industry. It happens a lot in journalism. You're a good reporter. You want to move up the track, and suddenly you go from being a reporter to a manager, an editor. Um, it's a very different skill set. What did you figure out about managing and editing that you didn't know going in? I think the thing that I now think, and I think my perspective on this has changed and may change again, but just that the core thing is really loving the stories and the reporting and the shows and the producing, and and that there's not some abstract skill called managing, and that if you get too interested in the sort of mechanics of management, you lose the point, and that the most useful thing you can do is be focused on like the goal and on the work. I don't think you can be a good editor if you weren't a good reporter. I think there's plenty of good reporters who aren't good editors. It seems like a very common thing is you get someone who had a very specific way of being able to report and a specific way of interacting with the world that worked really well for producing that kind of story. Probably doesn't work well with interacting with other humans, um, especially humans who work for them. Yeah. You know, my, my, my kids told when I, somebody early on at BuzzFeed asked me what it was like, how, my, how it was different that I was an editor now. And I was like, Daddy doesn't curse at people on the phone anymore. Because <laughs> when I was a reporter, it's a higher conflict kind of line of work. Did you have to teach yourself that, or someone pull you aside and go, you can't no, actually teach that person No, it seemed pretty obvious that you don't act in a confrontational way with your employees, which, in, which is, a, I think, appropriate thing to do with sources. But I'm imagining there's also a frustration when, like, well, if I was reporting this story, I would go do this, or I would talk, I would ask that question. How come they didn't ask that question? There's a bunch of things that you know how to do, either because you're really good at it or you learned to do it over time that this person doesn't know how yeah, to do. Yeah, but they want, they want your help, and they want you to say, hey, what if you wrote the email this way? And I think, like, one of the real—actually, to me, like, I was shocked how— like, I mean, I was very worried about kind of management, and I, I wound up being really— stunned by how satisfying and gratifying it was to like help reporters learn stuff and then see them do stuff you hadn't thought of and run through walls and like kind of get credit for their work too. I mean, it was really amazing. One of your employees who's a run through the wall for Ben Smith person said, yeah, you know, last year was really hard. Um, you guys had significant layoffs. That's the first time you've ever had to go through that. Ben's done this for eight years. It's, it sort of makes sense that he would, not just that he wanted to write again, but he would want to stop managing and want to be, and he's burnt out on that. Is that a fair assessment? I don't feel burned out. Like I'm, I feel like that has a fairly specific meaning, and that doesn't really apply to me. Um, and and actually, I, I think I kind of wanted to go write and report 
I, but I think I'll, I admit I love managing. I would love to do it again. There was a, I don't know how to pronounce Isaac's last name, Choitner? Do you yeah, know how to pronounce that? Choitner? Okay. Yeah. Where he's interviewing Jill Abramson about the book about BuzzFeed. Um, and there was a, a, a question there that really stuck out like a sore thumb. This was a couple years ago. It said, could Ben Smith be the executive editor of the New York Times? And she's sort of a bit taken aback. But I don't think he's the first person to sort of wonder if maybe one day you're going to move up the, the ladder there. Is that is that something that's of interest to you? I mean, I just did a lot of reporting uh, mm-hmm. on who was going to be the next editor-in-chief of the New York Times, and I can tell you my name did not come up. You are not in the running, from what I understand. I'm talking about a couple of years. You're not, you're not an old person. I, I, I don't know. And, and like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm— You don't want to just tell uh, people in the world that you plan to run the New York Times I think in 10 that, years? Yeah, I think that would be, like, a really awful way for me to enter the building with some obnoxious, like, you know, interview about how I plan to take it over. And honestly, I'm not—like, that's— so far beyond the scope of somebody's congratulations for successfully pushing away my stupid question. You're inheriting a job. Thank, that thank, Jim, thanks for trying to alienate all my future coworkers. You're inheriting a job that Jim Rutenberg had most recently, and again, it's, it's the thing that David Carr created, and, and David looms large over the Times, and he looms large over media. What are your memories of, of meeting David and working with David or bouncing around David? I mean, he, David was like incredibly, as you know, incredibly generous and funny and warm, and and I think like a kind of mentor to lots of people, mentoring them sometimes just by beating the shit out of them. But and but the, my most vivid memory is when he came by BuzzFeed in 2012, and it was really um, important to us. He, you know, he was a, like, it was a huge coming. deal. David Carr's coming. We're going to get David Carr column. And so we're sitting at a little table in the canteen, and Jonah is telling him sort of about Jonah's perspective on the future of media, which, by the way, like, I've heard before. Like, I work with Jonah. I hear him talk about the future of media a lot. So I'm sending some emails, and I'm trying to arrange pickup for my kids, and I've got a story to edit, and I'm on my phone. And three-quarters of the way through the interview, David turns to me and says, Are you bored? We're not going to be here much longer, but if you need to leave, you can leave. And it was like, ah, you know. And, but it was actually, what I realized was it was a great reporting tactic. Like, it totally destabilized the situation. Jonah and I kind of loosened up and started saying things we didn't mean to say. It was yeah, great. David Carr yelling at new media uh, journalists uh, is, is documented. Yes. Uh, and, and the David Carr, I'm not going to talk to you if you're looking at your phone thing, is, is also well documented. I've gotten a version of that. Uh, yeah, it was very effective. Yeah, sometimes he just stops. He just refused, would refuse to talk to you <laughs> until you real, And then you had to realize, I need to put the phone down so David can continue. <laughs> the idea that he was sort of an agenda setter, um, this is still when the Times, when he was doing it, the Times was obviously going through a lot of turmoil. Um, but he could still write pretty much anything, and that'd be the thing you had then had to discuss the next day. Do you think that perch still exists or can exist at the Times today in 2020 where you've got a you know, microsecond news cycle? Yeah, that's my goal. You want to be that person. I ben, think that's did you, did you read the Ben Smith column on Sunday? What do you think what he said about that? Yeah, and the thing with David is that even on Sunday afternoon, you'd be like a little nervous. Like, ah, oh, what's he going to write about? And and I, I think inspiring that kind of anxiety is a good goal. Yeah, I'm a very mean and petty person, so I would sort of hope that, like, oh, it wasn't a very good column. Right. So right. I didn't have to worry the, about it. you do the competition. Yeah, no, I know. And I think, I mean, I also think it takes a long time to build that up. Like, I'm not, I don't, I don't imagine I'm going to, and, and I just think I have a lot to learn about how to do that and how to do that kind of column. So, you go in 2020, there's a whole bunch of very sort of straightforward, obvious news media politics stories you're going to be covering. Something that you think that you can dig into that maybe isn't on someone else's radar? It's undercover. I'm definitely not going to talk about come that on, here. Come on. No, really. It's just us. No, really. I'm spending, I'm obsessing about this, but I, I don't want to talk about it. Is there stuff that you think, I'm really interested in this? I don't know if it's a New York Times story, though. 
I don't know if it's a New York, I don't know if that I can do it because maybe it's too picky or too small or too specific to my interest. You know, I've never bought the idea that it's too small a story, and I hope they'll let me occasionally be the third byline on minor stories. And like, you know, great media reporters there, you know, Michael Greenbaum and, and Mark Tracy and various others. And I'm hoping they'll let me come in with like, you know, some minor tip about, you know, the uh, the Vox podcast empire and we can it's pretty and, good and get, get a second or third byline it's on It's not it. a barstool podcast empire, it turns out. <laughs> It's a quality. It's a quality empire. Um, I hope I look forward maybe, to reading maybe a, a lot fief, of maybe more a fiefdom. I don't know. I look forward to reading a lot of sports gambling stories. That is you. actually as you my passion. Do you have an over under? I don't barely even know what that means. Me neither. Which is good because I'm writing about it. <laughs> uh, you start in early March. Do you take time off between now and then? Yeah, I got a little vacation plan, but not a lot. Yeah. Okay. Do you go where the media people go, or do you go somewhere where the media people don't go? Yeah, I go where media people don't go. Okay. Good. Ben Smith, what's the last question I should ask you? I don't know, Peter. You're the reporter here. I'm a mere media executive. You got more sleep than I did last night. (laughs) I don't know. You should... I think you should ask me something about BuzzFeed. Um, How's the union uh, discussion going? Well, actually, like, I I think... think We feel like we're in a good place. I think... I don't know. I think we have a lot of respect for the folks in the union, and and it seems reciprocated. And I I think that, actually, I'm very optimistic about that specifically. And actually, now that I... Now that I'm leaving and, you know, like it's probably it's sort of premature in my role as like leader of this particular newsroom because I think it's important that we just sort of get a working cadence and a relationship before before we do other things. But I do think there are big opportunities for labor and management in this business. I mean, I think our interests are basically really aligned. Like, to reinforce this, right? You're going to go from management to labor. You're going to be in the guild. That's apparently, most of the negotiating I, you know, I was, I, I was, this is maybe, I could be wrong, but I've been told that that is not a guild position. So, I, which I don't, I don't know why. We're, oh. But, um, that would be, that would be fun. Oh, a penny just dropped for me. What? I just, I just figured something out. Okay. What, um, what did you figure out? Is this, is, is this like a private thing I'm not supposed to talk about? Well, it's about, it's about your money. Or not it's about your money, yeah. Huh. I assume, I assume that, that, that changes things. You know, I don't know enough to know what I just told no, you normally about, I like indu- to about ask. industrial organizations. But let me finish the point that I was trying to make, yes, which sir. is just that I do think that like in an industry where, you know, where there are massive profits and the core battle is how do you split the profits between labor and capital, there's room for massive, massive conflict because those interests are just absolutely, totally at odds. In an industry that where the margins are slim and you're trying to make it work and do great work together, I think basically the interests are very aligned in terms of both labor and management want to create an ecosystem, you know, with particularly with the platforms where the, you know, where there's money flowing into journalism to support great jobs. And I think, I think there are opportunities to sort of speak in a united voice about that. You know, I've, I've noticed that a lot of the times I've seen union discussions come up. There's obviously a fight about whether we're going to recognize them or not. Um, and then what happens is they get, they get recognized and then we get to a point where the union members of a digital media shop are upset about something. This is the newly unionized uh, folks, and they say, we're very upset. Are you in the union? I'm not. Hmm. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a good question. Hmm. Um, Because I was kind of management for a while. All right. Um, And then they say, we're very upset, and we demand that something be done, and then management ignores them. I'm thinking of, like, the Gizmodo, Jim Spanfeller, or any any version of this. It is, like, the specifics matter. I mean, in that case... Like, I mean, I'm obviously, because I've been management, basically sympathetic to the possibility that management is really in the right and the unions are reacting. But in that case, management were total morons. Yeah, what I'm getting to is the idea that I wonder if the newly unionized journalists in New York and other places are going to realize that 
maybe there's there's more of a limit to sort of what the union is giving them than they thought. I don't know. I mean, I think I actually think there's a va- I mean, I think there's a value to creating kind of official channels and I don't know. I I feel right now it feels like it's a it's that that we're based fundamentally have the same goals. Okay, so I asked you about money. You said no. I asked you about your your first story, your best story that you're gonna write. You said no. You wouldn't pick out a specific story for me. I'm trying to wring some bit of news out of you, except that you're uh, reasonably comfortable talking about unions, which is a surprise. Because normally, when I ask an executive about this, it stops the conversation. Well, I'm no longer. I mean, I'm not going to be an executive much longer. But I've always been. I mean, I've always been comfortable talking about it. I, I actually. I mean. I actually think it's a great story. Like, I think I was shocked that nobody wrote the story of the Inside News Guild, the Internet, both the International and the New York chapter, where you had a kind of huge generational shift in media playing out through labor union politics in a way that I thought was totally fascinating. But, yeah, and, and, and you know, there, are, there, are, there is a shortage of labor reporters in this country right now. I would read that story. Well, there's the, so please don't write it because maybe I'll write that one. By the way, if you wanted to know other questions about Ben's uh, tenure at BuzzFeed, I did do this with him last September. It's oh, online. Yeah, you can right. go back and listen to it. I think that was like an hour. There were like tens of people in the audience, or ten people in the audience for that one at South I'm by. I'm taking was, that as a dig. Anyway, it was a no, good it was interview. No, it's a dig at me. I feel like you a, had other, other cooler interview. guests. That other people the liked it. You can go listen to that now. Thank you for your time here today, Ben. Thank you, Peter. Thanks to you guys for listening. See you soon. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply.